You're listening to TIP. On today's episode, I sit down with Jason DeBono to talk about one of the best and most underutilized ways to fund your real estate deals, self-directed IRAs. Jason is the vice president at Newview Trust Company, a leading self-directed IRA custodian, and is a successful real estate investor himself, having done flips, rentals, and even been a hard money lender using his IRA. This topic may be new to a lot of investors. It's one I've only studied a little bit myself, but I do plan on using it in my own real estate investing very soon. I often get questions from listeners asking how they can fund their real estate deals if they don't have a lot of their own money. Well, self-directed IRAs from other people can be a great way, and you'll learn all about that throughout this episode. So without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode with Jason DeBono. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'm super excited to have with me today, Jason DeBono. Welcome to the show, Jason. Hey, Robert. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Tell us a bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today. I go back to kind of the last 15 years of being here. And it really started with dad saying no, which is kind of interesting. You can't do that. And I I was a a senior at UCF in Central Florida trying to kind of figure life out. And I couldn't quite understand what I wanted to do, but I knew selling clothes at, uh, at a department store probably wasn't where I wanted to be. And so I went to an internship expo looking for some opportunity to get in the real world and stumbled across Newview and got to the interview and had no clue what they did. Called dad. Dad said, yeah, you can't do that. You know, I asked my broker about that before. He said, no, obviously that kicked the intrigue level up quite a bit. And it, uh, it was a, an interesting interview because I, it turned a little bit more into a, an educational seminar than it was more of an interview. And It was my dad's response when I left and called him and said, hey, dad, you're not going to believe this, but you can do this. It is legal. Here's why your broker told you that. And uh, and it was my dad's reaction of kind of a, wow, I wish I'd have known this five years ago that caused me to say, you know what? There's a lot of people just like my dad out there that need to hear this story. And here I am 15 years later, still telling the story. Yeah. I'm excited about our conversation all about self-directed IRAs, which is what you were alluding to there, and specifically using them to invest in real estate. Because like you said, I think it's really a great opportunity for a lot of investors, especially new investors. And I think it's often overlooked. I think a lot of people aren't aware of it. They think it's not possible. You know, Whatever the case may be, they, they just don't think it's, a, it's an option for them. And we mention it in passing a lot here on the show because I think it is a great strategy, but we've never dove deep into it. So I'm excited to do that with you today. So first, tell us what exactly is a self-directed IRA? And how is it different than a traditional or Roth IRA that people listening to the show probably have? Well, for starters, what's interesting is is it's not different. Self-direction is not a type of IRA. So you can still have a traditional or a Roth or a SEP or a simple or a solo 401k, an HSA, an educational savings account. Those are all plan types as defined by the IRS. What differs between them is what the custodian limits you to. So when we use the term you know, self-directed IRA, it's really to help people understand if you take your IRA and go to a Schwab or Fidelity, they're only going to let you buy stock sponsored mutual funds, right? Wall Street-based investments. A true self-directed custodian like Newview is 
is going to let you buy whatever you want. So it's not just stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. It's all the main street investments that come along. And that's where the real estate and, and all these other investments come into play. So when we talk self-direction, the IRA type is still critical, but self-direction gives you the choice to pick those investments inside whatever IRA you desire to establish. And you mentioned that your dad's broker didn't want him to know about this. And I'm assuming this is probably a stockbroker or more on the traditional sense. Why didn't your dad's broker want him to know about self-directed IRAs? I'm going to speculate a tad. And, and it's a good question because it, there's no right answer to it. And I'll tell you this, Robert, the, the answer probably would have been different 15 years ago than it is today. I think 15 years ago, when information wasn't at everyone's fingertips, it was a very selfish decision, right? Whether they knew or didn't know about it, likely it was just to keep him from moving his money out of his control. Today, I think most advisors understand that there's a place for it. I haven't heard someone say that it's illegal or anything along those lines in quite some time. I think most advisors realize that, hey, listen, you know, some of my clients are probably better suited picking their own investments and duplicating some of their personal investment strategies, which tend to include real estate inside a tax advantage vehicle like an IRA. So uh, today, thankfully, we're seeing a significant amount of advisors really push business to us because they realize if they tell their customer they can't do it, it won't take but about 10 seconds on the interweb to figure out that they can. And, and that's not how you build trust with your customers. So different answer today than 15 years ago. But at the end of the day, I think it just boils down to either lack of information and knowledge or, or not wanting the assets to leave their control. That's why I asked that question because I kind of knew what I thought you were going to say. And that was exactly it. Because when somebody's your advisor or your broker or something along those lines, they often get paid as a percentage of assets under management or something along those lines, or even commission based on what you're purchasing and selling. And if that's the case, if you take your assets out of there, you're not going to be making them any money. So a lot of times they want to keep it in. And so it's interesting to hear that. And I think, like you said, just because of how much information is available, I don't think that's as prominent as it today as it was back 15 years ago. But I think you do still see it happening. And that's why I wanted to bring it up. Because if people hear from someone else, whether it's their broker or even if it's family or whoever it may be, if they hear them telling them that, just realize that's not true. You know, They're probably either misguided or potentially just trying to lead you down the wrong path for whatever reason. And I would encourage you to look at incentives because that will often lead you to why you're getting the answer you're getting. On that note, when my dad set up his account with us right, you know, shortly after I took the job here, when he sent his statement in, his retirement account was held in an annuity, a five-year annuity at under 3%. So obviously that advisor had one interest in mind and that was making as much money off my father as possible. And it's sad you know, because you go to some of these people for trusted advice. And I do believe it's, it's still the minority of the advisors that are focused more on themselves than their clients. But we see this a lot with clients that come to us and think their advisor has been steering them in a good direction, but buying an annuity in an IRA that's already long-term where you don't get any tax benefits of the annuity that you don't already have in the IRA is, is just the only reason you make that investment is because someone got a healthy commission on it. And I'm no annuity expert by any means, but I have done a little bit of reading on them and I know that the commissions can be pretty steep on them. So I'm sure that that plays a big role in it. And like I said, always look back at incentives. That's where a lot of things will be born and why they say certain things. So when we look to use this type of an account, an SDIRA or a self-directed IRA to invest in real estate, how does that work? And I know that's a broad question, but what is the process for an individual real estate investor to use these funds to invest? So every investment's a little different. So, so you're right, it's a little broad and there's no necessarily one size fits all answer, but I'll talk in kind of general terms. 
The first step in the process is you've got to have a custodian that's going to let you hold real estate. So if your account is sitting at Schwab, Fidelity, you know, Merrill, chances are, unless you've got a significant portfolio with them, they're not going to let you do it. So the first step is you got to move your account to a custodian like NewView that can provide the services needed to keep your IRA and IRA while still allowing you to hold real estate investments. Once the account is set up, then step two is identifying your investment. And really, that's the part where it's, it's the self and self-direction. You get to go out and do your own due diligence, look and see properties that you know and understand, determine that the, the numbers make sense. And then once you've determined that, you will request that purchase through our team. So most of it can be done completely electronically. Obviously, depending on the deal, there's still some stuff that has to trade hands in paper format. But for the most part, it's just a matter of notifying NewView, providing us the the information on the investment, and then authorizing all the the money movements um, when they're ready to go out. Once that transpires, the IRA now owns the asset and any income associated with that asset, rental proceeds or anything, all come into the IRA. And then if there's expenses, so if you own a rental property and you got to pay a plumber or you got to pay other expenses, you can go right onto the website, just like you would to Bank of America, go onto the bill payment section and, uh, and queue those up. And they'll be paid out of the IRA proceeds as well. So all money in, all money out of the IRA as it relates to the IRA, uh, or sorry, to the real estate investment. What role does the custodian play when it comes to self-directed IRAs? And what are some of the most important things to look out for when you're choosing a custodian? So our role is passive and and every custodian that's in this business is passive. That's what allows us to do what we do. That means we're non-fiduciary. So we provide no investment advice, no investment endorsement or discretion. Everything that, that our clients do is our client's choice. So our job is to take direction from the client, act on that direction, and keep track of everything that comes in and out of the account and report it to the IRS as required throughout the year. And that's really the role that we serve. In terms of identifying a custodian, I think there's a couple things that you're going to want to look for. Number one is, what is their educational format and platform? With self-directed accounts, there's a need to be educated, right? We're talking on, on the show today, and there's a lot of people listening that may be familiar with a self-directed account in general terms, but they don't know the first thing about how to go out and operate one or what the limitations are, or what the boundaries are. So, you know, having, having a custodian that can really provide good educational content as part of their business offering, I think is critical. The second thing is, is what's their responsiveness? So when you pick up the phone and call their office, does someone answer? Do you get a live person or you jumped into voicemails and you got to wait? And I always tell people, if you ever evaluate any service business, whether it be a custodian like us or anyone else, never make a judgment on, on the sales folks. They're paid to answer their phones and return calls. Call in like you're a customer and, and see what it takes to get someone on the phone and what that process looks like, because that's critical. And then lastly, you know, how are they regulated? Not everyone in this business is a custodian. So a custodian is someone with typically with a trust charter. So we're, we're chartered in the state of South Dakota as a publicly chartered trust company. We're audited by the Division of Banking in South Dakota. We have capital pledges to the state, meaning we have money that just sits on pledge in South Dakota to ensure the safety and adequacy of, of the client accounts that we hold. Not everyone is held to that same standard. So Make sure that you understand, regardless of, of who you're talking to and how enjoyable the conversation is, what's their financial backing? You know, are, are they a registered trust company or are they an administration company that rents the services of a trust company? You know, do they have capital on pledge, that sort of thing? So if you're going to give your money to a group and organization, make sure that an organization in good financial strength. If the custodian that somebody's going to use, such as NewView in this case, if they're not able to give financial advice, which makes sense, 
who would they go to for that type of advice? Who would they speak to? Is it a CPA? Is it an attorney? Is it someone else? Is it a different professional that would be able to give them more guided, specific SDIRA feedback or just advice? I wish there was an easy way to answer that question. And it's, it's certainly a good one. Typically, CPA level professionals provide tax-related advice. Legal professionals provide legal-related advice. And we do push clients to those types of professionals frequently, depending on what they need. But when you get into the individual investment advice, it is a challenge because obviously you can go get all the advice you want in the stock, bond, and mutual fund market by someone that's commissioned to do so. In the real estate market, people aren't paid the same way. They're not incentivized the same way. On that note, there's lots of groups, clubs, and associations that exist that provide really good information. So depending on where you reside geographically, there's real estate investment associations. I personally prefer nonprofit ones versus for-profit ones. I just think your information is, is going to be a little bit less skewed, not to say that it will be, but the less likelihood of being steered in a direction that's financially viable for others. So the nonprofits tend to be good. Obviously, shows like this, I think I commend everybody that's on here. One of the things that we're big on is education. And I applaud everybody that's taking the time, whether you're driving, sitting at home, or whatever it is you may be doing, you're, you're getting functional use out of your time and, and really getting some good quality information. So it is an amalgam of, of ways that you're going to have to get it. And you've got to source it well, because as the old adage goes in the old commercial, right? If it's on the internet, it must be true. You got to be careful that, that you source it from the right places. So there's lots of good information out of there. Very little of it you should have to pay a premium for, but it is worth investing in your own knowledge and, and paying a few hundred bucks to, to hear someone that's been there, done that, and you can learn from their experience. A few hundred bucks is a lot cheaper than gaining the experience directly. And now my next question, we talked about how for tax advice, somebody should consult with a CPA. And so I'm not going to hold you to necessarily exactly what we're going to talk about, but I want to get at least a little bit of a high level conversation around this. So, and, and this is going to be a little bit specific to the US, but when you invest in real estate through a self-directed IRA, do you still receive tax benefits? And the reason I ask this is because one of the biggest reasons a lot of people get into real estate is because of all the amazing tax benefits that we get, whether it be depreciation, you know, all kinds of other different things you can get as a US citizen investing in real estate. So whether it be from investing in a retirement account because you get deferred capital gains or pay your taxes up front and then not pay it on the distribution at the back end. So do you still have those tax benefits? And then do you also still get the real estate tax benefits such as depreciation? This can be a little technical and I'll do my best to stay at 20,000 feet just to make sure we don't get too deep in the weeds on it. But at face value, the short answer is you cannot double dip, but understand the way tax benefits work. So when we look at tax deductions, right, depreciation and other things for owning real estate, those are tax deductions, right? You can use those to minimize the tax bill associated. So you have to have income that's taxable to be eligible to use your depreciation, other things to reduce against. In an IRA, none of your income is taxable. So you're not giving up the credits or the, the depreciation. You just simply don't need it. So I use the example of it's kind of like, like if I gave you a $20 coupon. Well, if you go to the mall and you, you have a $20 coupon and you buy a $15 shirt, they don't give you $5. You just get whatever credit. So the net result, the best result you can ever happen is zero on your best day. Well, if you bought a $40 shirt and gave them a $20 coupon, you're out of pocket 20 bucks. In an IRA, there's no coupon, but there's no price for the shirt. So you are gaining significantly more value by eliminating the top line number, which is the actual expense amount and foregoing the second number, which is the discount. So 
discounts only matter when you have something to apply it again. So the beauty is, and I'll, I'll, uh, if I can take just one more second on this question to elaborate on the value of IRAs, and I want to help people understand the people that truly build wealth, and I hate to say the wealthy build wealth, right? I mean, that sounds like such a dumb statement, but it's true. We all know the rich get richer. And, and the reason the rich get richer is they understand how to keep more of what they make. So where the average investor goes wrong is they chase yield. I want to make 20%, make 20% and that's not good enough. I want to make 30% and they go chase yield. And what happens when you chase yield or you chase return is it's like hitting a home run. Well, if you look at the stats, almost historically over time, the number one stat associated with the highest home run hitter is generally the highest strikeouts because they get the big heavy bat, they swing as hard as they can, and they either strike out or hit a home run. That problem is what plagues so many investors today. They're focused on yield. What most smart, prudent, wealth-building investors are focused on is really understanding the way to keep the most of what they make and then yield. So I'll give you an illustration in dollars. If I take $1 and I double it every year for 20 years. So what most Americans do is they take the dollar, they keep it in its regular dollar state, meaning taxable. They double it every year. So they take a dollar and make a dollar. Then they take $2 and make $4, turn it into $4. Well, what they don't realize is every year they pay tax. So assuming they're in a 25% tax bracket, at the end of 20 years, they'll have taken that dollar, doubling every year, less 25% tax, and they're going to have about 78,000 bucks. Now, most investors will high five their friends and family members, and they'll go on social media and say, look at me, I just turned a dollar into 78,000 bucks. And by every account, most people would say, wow, that Jason's really killing it. What they don't realize is the same dollar into the same investment, doubling every year, but done through a tax advantaged account. So the wealthy investor says, I'm going to take that dollar and I'm going to put it into a retirement account first or some tax vehicle. Then I'm going to take the same dollar, put it in the same investment, doubling every year. That person that makes that decision first has significantly more money than the 78,000 bucks, all the way to the tune of a million forty-five or so thousand dollars. So same investment amount, same investment, but the wise investor simply put it in a tax beneficial vehicle first and made a little over a million bucks. And the other investor who didn't know better or didn't have the resources or didn't take the time to educate themselves only made 78,000 bucks. So if you're listening today, ask yourself, what type of investor do you want to be? I mean, the answer is clear. We all want to be the million dollar guy or girl, not the $78,000 guy or girl. So when you think you're doing well, understand that there may be a better way to do it and education is the key. And this is what keeps the wealthy wealthy because they know these tax advantages exist. And an IRA is that vehicle. And you need to look at these investments on a net basis. So you could have somebody could be chasing a return at say 10% and they're going to be super excited about that. And they're going to say forego a, an 8% return because they say, well, 10% is obviously greater than 8%, right? But assume that 8% was in a tax advantaged account or it was tax-free for whatever reason. But now that 10% isn't tax-free. And so now you maybe say you have a 30% tax rate. Now you're down to a 7% return where that 8% would have been better. But to your point, the wealthy probably would have taken the eight because they would have realized that. But the, those who are not educated about it would have probably chosen the 10 because on a gross basis, it looks like it's more, but in reality, it's not. And similar to taxes, you could say the same thing about fees. I mean, thankfully, a lot of trading commissions and things like that are coming down in the stock market, but just fees and retirement accounts in general, they have the same effect as taxes. And if you do a calculator, just like you were just talking about, you can see the profound effect that fees have on returns. You're spot on from a fee standpoint. So in our business, we charge fees. 
we don't have any other way to make money. So when people come to us, I can't tell you how many times I've had customers say, I can't believe you're going to charge me for my account. Fidelity doesn't charge me. You know, and I'm thinking to myself, do you really believe that? Fidelity is, last time I checked, is not a nonprofit. I mean, Fidelity is a billion dollar profit company and they're not doing that by charging you no fees. So I think the naivety of investors, I mean, Wall Street has conditioned us to be exactly where they want us. They want us chasing yields and, and buying in when the tail end and catching the last little wave of growth. By the time the Main Street is, somebody is investing into a publicly traded security, they may think they're doing well because it went up 10%. But when that thing drops 20, 30%, because all the big money left first, generally it's the individual investors holding the bag. So just because you don't see the fees doesn't mean they don't exist. The fidelities of the world make a significant business and a significant return. The average mutual fund's over 1%. So if you think about it, every mutual fund you buy, you're paying over 1% of the value annually in fees just to be in the fund, whether it makes money or not. So it's, uh, it's a very expensive proposition to, to be in Wall Street-backed investments. And I'm not saying that investing in the stock market is bad. I'm a big stock investor myself. I love doing that as well as real estate. But to your point, it's not free. There is no free lunch. And a lot of people think that they're not paying any fees because trading commissions went to zero. But what they're not realizing is that's in the bid-ask spread. So you have the bid and you have the ask, and there's usually a spread there. And where do you think that spread goes? It has to go somewhere and it goes to the brokerages. And that's one of the places where they make a lot of their money. And I mean, to your point, they also have the mutual funds that have much higher fees as well. So there is no free lunch. And although you're not necessarily seeing it as a deduction in your account, you're paying that on the front end or, or it's there in some way. So definitely wanted to mention that as well. So I've mentioned that I've studied self-directed IRAs a little bit. And so I know there's some strict guidelines and rules around how you can use these funds when you're investing in real estate. Please walk us through how some of the most common rules or laws regarding investing in real estate using a self-directed IRA. The first thing I'll say is kind of think about that example I said, right? The dollar doubling over 20 years in a taxable account is about 75 grand and, and doing it in a retirement account is a little over a million. Well, obviously, because of that spread, the ability to generate significant returns and keep them all, the IRS puts a pretty strong fence around that tax benefit. They want to make sure that there's no opportunities for people to funnel money in or out of these tax-advantaged accounts. So they want, to, they want people to use IRAs as true passive accounts to get to retirement, but they don't want them to use them as tax shelters. So the way that they set the rules up is twofold. And, and for those with kids, I think you'll, you guys will all understand this. And without, I think you'll get it too. The, the rules are kind of the same way that we parent our children. So I've got a nine-year-old and an eight-month-old, and we generally don't walk around and say, you can do that, you can do that, you can do that, right? How do we parent our kids? Don't touch that, don't eat that, don't climb on that. And the idea is that if we tell them all the things they can't do, it'll help create the framework of what they can do. And the IRS guidelines around self-directed accounts are just like that. So maybe that's the IRS's, IRS's way of saying we're kind of like toddlers. And there's probably some truth to that to some degree. But the way the rules read is very simple. No life insurance, no collectibles. So if it's considered a collectible in any way, shape, or form, or falls under the life insurance family, you cannot buy it inside an IRA. It's expressly prohibited. So if you wanted to go out and buy artwork or, or gems or or rugs, antiques. They even consider alcoholic beverages you know, in there to keep people from putting vintage wines and other things into their accounts. It's all expressly prohibited, pretty straightforward. The second rule, and it's rule two of two, is they want to make sure that the IRA as its own entity, this tax-deferred entity, 
they want to make sure that it only does business at an arm's length. And to ensure that, they, they put a list of people they don't want that entity doing business with. Those people include you and your spouse, people above you, so your parents and grandparents, your lineal ancestors, and then your lineal descendants, children and grandchildren. By extension, spouses and businesses of any of those parties. So what that means is the IRS says, there is no way that Jason's IRA is going to invest at an arm's length, meaning fair market value, with Jason's dad. There's too much incentive for me to get a premium of income, right? Because it all goes in tax-free, maybe a way to pass generational wealth. And so the IRS says, we're not going to police it. We're just going to prohibit it. So even if you think the deal's at a fair market rate, it doesn't matter. You can never do business with you, your spouse, parents, grandparents, children, grandchildren, and the businesses and spouses of any of those parties. So if that's the case and somebody hears that, how can I use my money in a self-directed IRA to invest in real estate? So you can buy anything else. So what they're saying is you can buy real estate. So my IRA could go out tomorrow and buy a piece of real estate. Let's just say a single family home in Denver. I could do that tomorrow, no question asked. If the property was currently owned by my father, I couldn't do it because my dad would have to sell something to my IRA. Well, think about it this way. If my dad sells it at a severe discount, he gets a loss on his personal taxes and I buy this million dollar property for 50 grand and now I have a million dollar asset in my IRA that only costs 50 grand and that's completely tax-free. I mean, you can see how easy it would be if they allowed it to commit tax fraud. So they say, we're not going to even police the fair market value. We're just going to tell you, you can't do it. So I can buy a property. I can rent the property. I can sell the property. I can hold it as long as I want. I just can't buy it from that small group of people. I can't sell it to that small group of people, nor can I rent it. But I could buy a piece of real estate tomorrow and I could rent it to you, Robert, and your family to go move into. So that's the clarification that I was looking for is you can do the purchase yourself. You just can't purchase it from somebody or sell it to, like you said, or rent it to one of those named people. But you can do the deal yourself. I was under the impression that you actually had to give that money to someone else to invest. So I thought, you know, Jason, if you and I were going to invest in a deal together, say I had an SDIRA, I'd have to give you the money and then you could invest it in your own deal, but I couldn't actually use the money myself. But that sounds like that's not the case. Unfortunately, you know, there's so much bad information out there and, and that's the hard part about the internet. If you can fog a mirror, you can call yourself an expert and, and put something on there. And we deal with this all the time with what we refer to as just common misconceptions. And it happens all the time. But to your kind of comment, the issue is not what you buy. The issue isn't about giving the money to someone else. The issue is just simply stating your investment can't include those parties. But as long as it doesn't include those parties, I've got clients that own single family homes, multifamily, duplex, triplex, raw land. We have clients that own boat slips, burial plots. We've got clients that own orange groves and citrus groves and hunting land and mineral rights and, I mean, clam farms and stuff that you kind of go, holy cow, I didn't even know you could put money into something like that. You know, it, it just seems so esoteric, but all of those investments are permissible. It's not the asset class that's going to get you in trouble. Any of those investments, so long as you're buying and selling with unrelated parties and leasing to unrelated parties, if applicable, you got no issues at all. Buy whatever you want. If you want your transaction to involve some of those disqualified parties I mentioned, then you're likely going to stub your toe because the IRS wants to ensure that you're only investing for the benefit of the plan at retirement. And again, let's face it, as honest as I think I am, 
if I bought a piece of property from my father through my IRA, it'd be way too attractive to buy it at a discount for the reasons I've already mentioned. So the IRS knows that and, and even the best of taxpayers and the most honest of taxpayers are going to skirt the law if they didn't put those rules in place. So how can someone leverage a self-directed IRA that someone else has to raise money for the deal that they're doing, their real estate deal? So this is the other people's money story. And this is where IRAs really play a big role. So there's two types of people with IRAs out there. There's what I refer to as passive and active, right? And, and that's very profound. And I didn't necessarily make that up myself. But the reason that it's important to categorize people into that bucket is because it depends on what they want to do. Active people are going to go out and find their own deals. That's just how they work and operate. They're willing to invest the time. They don't want to give up any of the interest. They're going to go find the properties. They're going to go through that process. Those people aren't interested in investing into someone else. They're going to own it from start to finish. Those individuals that are active need money to get these deals over the finish line. And so those people look for the passive people, right? The passive people are someone just like myself. I've got a W-2 job. I've got 50 employees here and a day-to-day that keeps me so busy. I don't have time to go out and knock on doors and find properties. So I got 10 or 12 people that I know really well that I got to know over the years and they call me when they have a deal. Hey, this is the property. This is what I found. And we come to terms on what they can pay me for my money. I use my IRA for that. And we come to terms on something that makes financial sense for the deal. I want them to make money because I want them to do more of it. So they keep calling me with deals and I want to make enough money that justifies the risk I'm taking. So active people love passive people, passive people love active people. So if you're one of those active investors, yeah, I mean, as you're out talking to people about investing with you, there's nothing that would preclude them from using their IRA for those investments. And I'd even take it a step further to say it's actually benefits everybody if they do, because the passive investor gets the tax benefit and they don't have a strong need for that money today. So if you're investing, you're not under a time constraint. Whereas if I were to invest with you, Robert, if you're the active investor and I'm the passive guy, if I use my personal money, I may be calling you six months from now because COVID hit saying, hey man, what's going on? I need my money, right? I lost my job or whatever it is. But if it's in my IRA, that's the last money I'm ever going to touch. So it's patient money and and that benefits the passive investor, but, but really benefits the active investor. So what is the best way for a real estate investor who's looking to raise that capital for their deal to easily and effectively educate someone else, a third party, on how they can convert their other retirement accounts into a self-directed IRA and invest in their deal? So this may sound like a, a weird answer, especially considering I'm on the IRA custody side, but it, you're not going to educate someone on the IRA portion. And I know that may sound, again, contrary to, to what I do as a business, but your job as an active investor when trying to, to raise money, whether it be from one investor or a thousand investors, it's the same. The first piece of importance is you got to make sure the individual knows you, understands what you do, trusts you, and likes the deal. Going back to that shirt example, it doesn't matter how someone's going to pay for the shirt if they don't like the shirt to begin with. So if you walked into a store and the first thing out of someone's mouth was, hi, Robert, welcome to ABC retail store. How are you going to be paying today? That's really what an IRA is. It's just a form of payment. So when you're out talking to investors, we encourage all the groups that we talk to is your job is really to help them understand who you are, what you do, and how you're going to be a good steward of their money. The second thing is you have to do that. If you tell them you're going to do something, do it. The third step, once they say, wow, that's really cool, how do I engage or I'd like to learn more, do more, 
that's when the conversation comes in to say, hey, I don't know if you know this or not, but I learned on the Real Estate Investing Podcast that I could use an IRA for an investment like this. And I wanted to pass it on to you in case your money was locked up in an IRA. I've got a resource that that I can refer you over to that can walk you through the process. They're not going to help you on the investment side. That's my job, but they can help you understand how this type of deal works in an IRA if that's of interest to you. If not, if you want to pull your pen and and checkbook out and write me a check today, I'm not going to slow that process down either. I just wanted you to know there's another way to do it in a tax advantage manner if that's of interest. Given that there aren't as many people that have just $50,000, sitting around in a checking account that can invest, but there's a much larger pool of people who have retirement funds that could invest, how do you navigate that dynamic that you just mentioned? Because I, I think you made a really good point. And I think, like you said, you don't want to go there and ask for payment right away until you have a relationship. I really agree with that idea. And I like that idea a lot. But how does an investor not waste their time on building that relationship with someone and then them not being able to even in, in fund their deal or you know, not follow through with their self-directed IRA or whatever the case may be? How do they not understand that they're going to be a real viable investor without talking about that up front? Great comment, because you're right. I mean, it's a little bit of threading a needle that can be difficult. You obviously want to qualify that investor before you you know, spend hours telling them all about how wonderful you and your investment are only for them to say, sorry, but I don't have a dollar to my name. And again, I think the, the tightrope that you're walking is introducing the monetary discussion before you've given them a chance to understand what you do. But generally, if you're raising money from someone, I mean, you're generally familiar with basic levels of qualification. There should be a couple of questions that you can ask to determine if someone's eligible to even participate in a deal. So in our world, just to give you perspective, our qualifying questions really are, do you have a retirement account? And are you interested in alternative investments? If the answer is no to one or both of those, you just don't need our service. So I would encourage everybody that's out there to kind of list a couple of very generalized qualifying questions that you can work into the conversation early on. So If I'm going through this, I may ask the question like, you know, hey, Robert, if you're interested in kind of what you hear today as we talk about this investment, are you even willing and able to to participate in this offering if it was a fifty or hundred thousand dollar minimum? And so you may be able to ask some generalized questions that are IRA specific that give you that. And you can always probe a tad bit more depending on that answer to say, you know, and just by the way, one thing that I like to share right up front is this this investment is IRA eligible. So if you've got money in a retirement account, we don't have to get deep into it right now, but I just want to give you a heads up. This is something that a lot of our clients use retirement money to participate in. Is that something that may be of interest to you? To go back to the point about limitations for a second, does a real estate deal that's using self-directed IRA funds, does it have to be fully funded by self-directed funds? Because I thought I had heard in the past or read about that, that you couldn't commingle money. So you couldn't have one investor that's just bringing in taxable cash, and then another person that's bringing in self-directed IRA money. This may be another one of those kind of unfortunate misconceptions out in the marketplace. Obviously, everything we're talking about is in general terms. It doesn't mean it universally applies, but it applies more often than not. There is no limitation on commingled funds. Where you have to be careful with commingled funds is commingled between related parties, people on that list. But you know, again, using you, Robert, as the active investor, if you came to and said, you know, I'm going to go out and do a, an office building deal. I've got it under contract. I need a million bucks to take it down. And it's going to generate 12 to 14% for my investors, just using some round numbers. As you're out, if you're going to go find $10,000 investors, it doesn't matter if Sally uses her IRA and Billy uses his IRA and then Mikey pays personally. 
and uh, Jimmy pays with a trust and Donnie pays with a corporate account that they may have. There's no limitation because each investor is treated individually, kind of like when you buy stocks. Microsoft can have investors that use IRAs and non-IRAs and personal and joint. So there's no limitation there as long as it's clearly defined what each investor owns and what each investor is entitled to in terms of prorated interest in the investment. There's absolutely no limitation on, on commingling money, even down to potentially, and again, I'll, I'll say this with a big asterisk that you want to make sure you understand this as a little bit more of an advanced approach. But if you have that deal, I'll, I'll just use myself. I have a 401k through my company that allows us to, to buy and sell real estate, right? It's fully self-directed, which is pretty rare. I have an HSA account, which is tied to my high deductible health insurance plan. We have an ESA account for Tyler, our nine-year-old. So if you came to me with an investment, that office deal, I could put $50,000 from my 401k into the deal, $20,000 from my HSA into the deal, and $10,000 from my son's ESA, because each individual account is a unique individual investor to you. So I've not invested that money with each other because my 401k is not paying anything to my HSA and my HSA is not paying anything to my son's ESA. They're all individual investors uniquely titled to your investment. So there's some strategies that can be deployed to put money to work together and alongside disqualified parties so long as you don't transact with each other, which is, again, sorry to kind of get a little advanced there, but, but I wanted to drop that nugget because it's a fantastic strategy and, and very candidly one that I've deployed for the last 15 years. No, I think that's great. And I think this is really, really interesting and important information. And I'm really glad that we're having this conversation because like I said, I've read a little bit about it here and there online. But as we've discovered throughout this episode, there's been some misconceptions that even I've had just from the things I've read across Google or other resources. And then we've had other people on the podcast that have briefly mentioned SDIRAs you know, in passing, but we've never done a, a full deep dive. So it's really interesting to hear all of these different intricacies and all the different things you can do with these funds. And, and I think it is a great opportunity for a lot of investors. So how does leveraging these funds impact somebody's ability to obtain traditional bank financing? Or does it even impact it at all? So if an investor wants to leverage the IRA itself, so in the example of you as the active investor and me investing my money passively through my IRA with you, it really doesn't matter how you finance the property because you as an individual can finance it however you want because you're buying it personally, right? But if my IRA is going to go acquire a property and it's going to be an, the owner, I can use leverage. And this is very, very powerful. I do have that luxury. And I'll just go so far to say very, very simply, you cannot leverage your IRA to buy stocks and bonds. Not because it's not allowed, because no bank or anyone out there will ever write you a loan on stocks in an IRA because the loan has to be non-recourse. And non-recourse means that it's really an asset-based loan, not a person-based loan. So if you think about it, if Robert, you walk into Bank of America and say, I want to go buy that property, it's X dollars. They're going to look at you and say, okay, how much money do you make? And what's the likelihood that your income will provide enough over the years to pay the mortgage? They're looking at your ability to pay the loan. In a non-recourse loan, the bank is saying, I don't care about you, Robert. I care about the property you're buying. So they're going to look and say, what is the property's ability to generate enough money to pay the loan back? So it has to be income-producing property, but non-recourse loans exist all day long. They exist pretty heavily in the commercial space. A million-dollar strip plaza, nobody's personally guaranteeing that stuff, right? Or a $10 million apartment complex. They're not worried about a personal guarantee. They're looking for the property's ability to generate income to repay it. 
in an IRA, what's awesome is you can go get a non-recourse loan and leverage your account. So my dad, I told the story about him from the get-go. My dad owns two properties in his IRA today that both have leverage. So he has two loans on the properties. One is bank financing. So he went to a bank and got non-recourse financing. And the second is a private loan. He went to a private lender and somebody that, that had money that was looking for a, you know, a decent return and they loaned the money via non-recourse loan. And uh, those are both held in my dad's account. The way it works is simple. So property A has a $900 mortgage and it rents for 1200 bucks and collects the 1200 bucks, pays the 900 bucks out for the mortgage, PITI, and whatever's left stays in the account. And, and the goal is that you, know, you can pay the property off or use that leverage to buy multiple properties and build steady streams of income. So who is a self-directed IRA good for? I think it's good for a lot of people, but who is it specifically good for? And then on the other side, who might it not be good for? Well, a self-directed IRA is really good for anyone that has any sort of either desire or aspiration or knowledge in Main Street investments. So most of our customers, and I won't say all, but most of our customers, they already have some inclination to alternative investments or Main Street investments. So these are likely people that have already invested in real estate. They've already owned a rental property or done a passive investment deal. Not many people come to us and make the very first non-stock investment they've ever made in their IRA. So generally, it's people that already have an interest level. I mean, you know, think about it. How many people listen to this podcast? Everyone on here is a prime candidate. You're taking the time out of your day to understand how to be a better real estate investor and, and understand it. Well, why wouldn't you take that knowledge and put it to work in a tax advantage vehicle like your IRA? So that's really our primary kind of core customer is someone that's doing something like this already in a taxable account. And they just want to join the club of people that are keeping more of they make of what they make and do it in a tax advantage way. Who is this not for? When I say it's not for, I'll paint a, a little bit of a, a bigger brushstroke. It's really for people that don't want to go out and do their own due diligence. Because even if you're going to go be the active investor and I'm the passive, it doesn't mean I don't have due diligence to do. I still need to do my due diligence on you. I still need to look at the deal. You tell me you're going to make a million dollars on a deal and it's crazy. I need to know that up front. So for the people that aren't willing to do that, and, and there's a lot of people and, and they may be unwilling because they just don't want to, or they may be unwilling because they don't have an interest or understanding. So in either case, this is really not for people that don't know a whole lot about investing and don't want to put in the time and energy to learn it. I'd also say that nearly everything we've talked about throughout the episode so far has been pretty positive about self-directed IRAs. But almost everything in this world has drawbacks. So what are the disadvantages or some of the issues, not necessarily limitations, but issues with using self-directed IRAs? So the biggest issue that we find is it's the self and self-direction. It means you have to go find your own investments. And what happens for a lot of investors is it sounds great in theory, but as a practical matter, they don't want to actually do it. Kind of like going to the gym. It sounds great in theory, but a gym membership does you no good if you don't physically go to the gym. A self-directed IRA does you no good if you don't physically put the effort in to find investments for it because we won't. And I've had customers after a few months call and say, you know, I just haven't had a time to go do it. Can you tell me what I should put the account into? And I have to tell them it's probably best you don't have this account because I can't help you with that piece of it. That's not the role and responsibility that we play. So yeah, it's really the biggest challenge for many people and the biggest drawback is that you got to go out and find investments. And it's not easy. It's not hard. I'll say that if I can do it, it it's certainly a testament that it's not hard, um, but it's not easy. It's work. Even as a passive investor, I still got to go find deals. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It might be a little bit difficult, 
I mean, it's doable and it just takes a little bit of work. I mean, if you're going to get good returns, nothing comes free. We talked about this. There's no free lunch. You got to put in a little bit of work. So we've also mainly talked about self-directed IRAs to invest in real estate, but I know, and you've mentioned it, but I know there are a lot of other options for investment when you're using a self-directed IRA. So briefly walk us through some of those other assets or asset classes that you can invest in using your self-directed IRA that you can't necessarily access with a traditional retirement account. So it really boils down to, we'll call it three main categories, and they're almost equally split in terms of, of our asset holdings here. We've talked to, that one third is real estate. We've talked all about that, and it's real estate of every possible type you could imagine and then some. The second category is debt, private notes and loans. So there's a significant amount of this. Some of this is real estate backed, so there's a, it could fall into either camp, but in our system, it means that somebody has lent money on some sort of repayment terms. And this could be personal loans, this could be loans, and, and I'll give you an example of something I've done from a lending standpoint. And this is how I do a lot of my investments passively. So I've invested passively as a lender to as hard money. So I've given someone money to go do a deal. I've done a, a, a private mortgage on someone that was buying a property. I've done a personal loan for someone that had some credit card debt at significantly high interest. And so I was able to cut the interest in half while still making double digit returns for me. And, and this individual was able to really cut their debt servicing in half. And, and that was turned out to be a great investment for both of us. We both went at the end of that. All of those are private loans. You can lend money privately to companies as well. We have clients with loans to convenience stores secured by a liquor license. So to bars and nightclubs and restaurants. So we see a little bit of everything. But yeah, this basically alone means that someone is, has agreed to repay you under terms, non-equity position, debt position. The third category would be private company investing. So this is syndications would fall into this if you're investing into a syndication, but this also includes operational businesses. So I think everyone is, is familiar with Uber and, and Lyft. I mean, those not companies not too long ago were private. So yet they raised millions and billions of dollars. Well, every single company early on takes on investors every single one. And obviously, we'd all like to be uh, the second or third investor. Hell, I'd like to be the 50th investor into Uber. But there's lots of those opportunities right in our backyard and, and certainly not Uber level. But there's lots of, of successful companies that are private that, that take on investors. And so you can buy stock in those companies just like you do a publicly traded company, but it, it's private. You can't sell it easily. And so you're, you're a little more confined to, to your ownership. But those are kind of the, the big three categories. When I say miscellaneous, it's not because it's not important. It's just the numbers are a little bit smaller in terms of overall asset class. Precious metals, cryptocurrency, those probably are kind of the highest tax liens, tax deeds, tax certificates. You got a customer that owns a racehorse. You name it, you can do it. That last category is, uh, it may be the smallest as a percentage, but being on the custody side is probably the most fun for me. I see some pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, I was going to say it might be the smallest percentage, but it's probably the most fun. Jason, I've mentioned it a couple of times throughout this episode. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I love learning about this stuff. I think it's such a, a good opportunity for everyone listening to the show, really for all real estate investors or really any investor. So I know a lot of people listening to the show today are going to enjoy the conversation and are probably going to want to learn more and connect with you. So where's the best place for them to go to learn more about you and, and connect with you? First place that, that I always recommend is our website. It's newviewtrust.com with a U-N-U-V-I-E-W trust.com. The reason I suggest the website, there's so much educational content. Obviously, all of our contact information is there. So you can certainly get a hold of us 
should you choose to engage. But even if you just wanted to go on there and go to our blog section, there's hundreds of pre-recorded videos and things that we've done on a variety of topics. So obviously today our conversation was pretty general, even though we covered a lot. But there's a lot of things we talked about that we drilled down. And so we talked about getting a loan in an IRA. We have a 30 minute to an hour program just on that. And so we get deep in the weeds. So if that's where your interest level is or any particular asset class, or I mentioned I use my HSA and ESA to invest in real estate, which people think is like the coolest thing ever. And there's presentations that are just geared to that. So our job on the website is to educate you. We want you to be informed and understand how to do it. So without a doubt, spend some time there, kick the tires a little bit. And if you feel like you've got questions or want to understand how it applies to your situation, all of our contact info is on there. And and we certainly would love to chat with you. I know I've spent quite a bit of time myself reading and watching videos and just going through all the different resources on the New View website. So I highly recommend that everybody listening to the show today goes and does that themselves. I know you'll learn a lot of great information. Jason, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Robert, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun today. Thank you. I hope that this week's episode gives you another idea of how to maximize all the resources available to you in order to scale your real estate portfolio. As always, Relevant links and contact information are in the show notes below in your favorite podcast player or at theinvestorspodcast.com slash realestateinvesting. Thanks so much for joining us on this week's episode of Real Estate Investing, and I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.